Hosting for this podcast is made possible through mtgcast.com, which is supported by a generous contribution from quietspeculation.com, Magic's premier trading and financial news site. M14 and our Dragon's Maze report card on episode 27 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 27 of So Many Insane Plays, in which Steve and I review M14, new cards and rules changes, as well as our Dragon's Maze report card. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback at Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this week, Steve, we've got a few upcoming tournaments. Team Sirius Open is in Columbus on July 27, and you've got a Eudaimonia tournament the next day, July 28th in California. Are you going to play at that one? Oh, yeah. Excellent. This will be the second Eudaimonia vintage tournament. We've had great success holding Legacy over the summer and in the spring, but we're very excited to try and rebuild the vintage scene in the Bay. So if you're anywhere in the Bay Area, San Jose, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, Sacramento, come down to Eudaimonia on Sunday, July 28th, and we're going to have a great time singing vintage. Excellent. And you have another chapter in your history of vintage coming out, yes? Yeah, 2001, which is chapter 9. It's a great chapter. Um, it's 40 pages, not counting endnotes. It will be released ju- this Sunday, July 21st at midnight. <laughs> Set your alarm clocks. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, we also want to talk about some news that we've got lately about dual lands coming in Theros. Sam Stoddard gave us a, a hint, a, a little preview, and said that there are dual lands in Theros and that he was looking forward or excited about them. So clearly, Sam's excited. Everyone else is now excited. Steve, you've done a little bit of recent studying about the history of dual lands, actually. What does this portend for you in this pseudo-legendary block, as far as we can tell, coming up? Well, you know, we don't know much, but there's, I think, two things that can be said. One, we can go back and look at every single kind of dual land, and that's what I'm trying to do in this like free article I'm writing for Eternal Central. And broadly speaking, there there tend to be three forms of dual lands. There's the pain land form, which there is a full you know set of the first coming in Ice Age, the second half coming in Apocalypse. Um, and and the pain lands allow you, unlike City of Brass, allow you to tap for a colorless without any any life loss. Um, and then there are the the tap lands, the lands that come into play tapped. And then there are filter lands. There are, of course, other forms of there are forms of each of these. So there are tap lands that you can only use every other turn. There are lands like from Invasion, like Coastal Tower, that just come into play tapped and then afterwards function very much like the original Alpha Dual lands. And then there are these variants of filter lands where you can pay a particular kind of color or even a colorless into them and get certain combinations of colored mana out of them. They each have drawback. Um, the idea of a legendary alpha land seems exciting and plausible. Of course, I would not expect them to like the alpha lands or the shock lands. Um, um, I would not expect them to be fetchable. And why is that? Well, I think thematically, you know, a legendary land, some, something that is truly legendary, unique, would not count <laughs> as a basic land type. Don't you agree? I agree that it 
it violates a little bit of the flavor of a thing to just call a place an, an island, a legendary island. But it's certainly mechanically possible. They have demonstrated a few cards recently that they are willing to defer the flavor for play reasons. So I think there's a non-zero possibility, oh. but it definitely is not in flavor with a legend. Yeah, I think there's already enough concern over that point, that if Wizards is seeking to print Alpha Dual Lands as legendary cards, that they probably wouldn't want to take the additional step for playability reasons of making them fetchable. They'd probably be good enough without having to have that uh, particular functionality built in. I'd like to cover two aspects of that. One is, how big of a drawback do you think simply having the legendary status is for an otherwise alpha duel? Well, under the... Let's just answer, respond to that before you put the second question. Mm-hmm, sure. Um, clearly, the new legend rule would permit anyone who is in those colors to use at least one of these in their deck. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think they would function as substitutes for the marginal third or fourth and potentially even a second dual land. So, for example, if you're building a legacy or a vintage deck and you only own one tropical island, it's conceivable that you would maybe use the legendary alpha one as the second. More likely, you'd use it as a third. So you would have opportunities to uh, the first or the second one, you know, or the second one if you grew the first uh, tropical island. But I think it's it, it pretty close to a legitimate substitute for a third or fourth dual land in either vintage or legacy. I would entirely agree with that. And I think that that is a benefit to eternal formats, which you and I are primarily concerned with. I would like to see that because it would help with the cost issues and barrier to entry for the mana bases in these formats. Yeah, I think some of our, because I share that perspective, I'm simply concerned that I might be confusing what I want to see with what I actually (laughs) might see. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying not to do that as well. Trying to remain objective. But to that point then, given what you said about legendary, regular, alpha, fetchable dual land, what do you think about the notion of them? Non-fetchable. No, hold on. I'm speaking from the perspective of what we were just talking about, though. If they wanted to print fetchable, legendary duels, do you think they could add additional drawbacks? Do you think that fits their pattern lately? Do you think that would accommodate the lands from a balance standpoint? Or do you think it's just a flavor fail that's a non-starter from the get-go? Well, I think it's it's feasible. I just think that it's feasible from a mechanical perspective that it wouldn't be overpowered to print Mm -hmm. fetchable, legendary duels. But I think that there's already going to be enough consternation over the idea of printing uh, the, the, that they would probably seek to make them in some aspect not as good as the alpha duels. And the, I think the most obvious way to do that is to simply remove their fetchability from the card. And, and just to just to explain, my previous analysis was predicated on the assumption that these cards, that the legendary duels from Theros, if they were like Alpha, would not be fetchable. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was saying they would they would not substitute for the first or second likely dual land, but they could substitute for the third or the fourth. Yeah, I see, and I agree with your analysis, and I also agree that it seems less likely. I would put it at less than fifty percent that these are fetchable lands. I think it's more likely that they are legendary duels that have other kinds of upside. I don't think they're just going to be vanilla, just plain two colors and that's all legendary land. I think they're going to have additional abilities or additional upside of some kind. That's certainly... that's So um, in my canvassing of uh, dual lands, the, the one sort of outlier, the outliers are the, the two dual lands from Future Sight. Right. Nimbus Maze and River of Tears, which cycles because there's <laughs> those are the only two cards in the cycle. Um, 
but they point to ways in which you could do something like what you might be suggesting. Yeah, and the possibilities are still endless there. You're right. Those two demonstrate how there's so much untapped design space for how to handle a dual land. Wizards has built in a variety of kinds of conditions and drawbacks. So in addition to the the main staple forms of dual lands, which are the life loss, pain lands, tap lands, and filter lands, I think the shock lands probably count as a mixture of both life loss and tap lands, right? Sure. Because uh, they're one or the other, your choice. There are a set of um, a, a fourth category, which are basically conditional lands. Um, so there are um, a, a cycle of dual lands that don't come into play tapped if you control a basic land with which the dual land is allied. Mm-hmm. The buddy there, the buddy lands. Yeah. Okay, that's that's what they're called, the buddy lands. Yep. There's also a cycle from Lorwyn where if you control a particular tribe card type in your hand, you can play the dual land without putting it into play tap. So it's a tap land by default that can be conditionally used immediately, um, provided you have certain conditions like have a goblin in your hand or a merfolk in hand. Yeah, it seems like those are two good examples of how they could tie in the lands to legends of various characteristics. You could have one in your hand, you could have one in play, etc., etc. Exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a strong legendary card integration mechanically with the lands themselves. That's just one possibility that would seem fairly straightforward to me, especially if the set does have things that people are speculating about, like a heavy legendary component, even common legendary creatures. Yeah. We'll see. I genuinely hope that they are fetchable. <laughs> I can't I can't shake that because of what I want for the eternal formats, but as long as they have relevant abilities, I'll still be happy. Yeah, I don't I don't um I won't shed any tears if they're not fetchable. <laughs> not for the reason, not for the reason that I, I don't, I, I'm concerned how they'll impact alpha dual lands, but because I think even if they're not fetchable, they're still going to be plenty playable yeah. in eternal. Re- I mean, there, there are reasons that there are, there are reasons to run a fourth one, right? Over, so if you're playing, I don't know, um, let's just say you're playing Rug Delver in Legacy. There are reasons to play new legendary tropical island over a fourth tropical island, right? Sure. I mean, it's, it's immune to, um, you know, things that like submerge or, um, you know, people don't necessarily play things like Boil or Tsunami anymore, but things that would have that effect, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there are reasons not to because it, it, you couldn't daze it, but if you're not playing with daze, that's not a problem. Yeah, the the island walk on Merfolk comes to mind as well. Not to mention cards like Extirpate. Yep, yep. Or Surgical Extraction. Snow-Covered Island sees play in Vintage Gifts list, or at least it did when Gifts was common, for that very reason. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll definitely be covering the matter keenly when we get more information. One other key change came out this last week with regard to M14, and that was the Oracle update, which had lots of, well, typical updates, corrections to cards, clarifications to rules, updates with regard to changes coming out in the set, etc., etc. But there was one really fascinating, mostly Eternal-specific change that came out in that update, where... (laughs) It sounds simple on its face, where the expansion symbol on a card is no longer one of its characteristics. Every card is considered to be from the expansion or the set that it was first printed in. And the practical upshot of that is that cards that care about expansions, like City in a Bottle from Arabian Nights and Golgothian Silex 
from antiquities. These cards now apply. To, and and well, yeah, there are other examples. What's oh, well, there's one other apocalypse charm. Yeah, apocalypse charm. Also, a world bottling kit if you're into that kind of thing. But the the practical upshot of that is that any card that was first printed in a set that's affected by the card in question will be affected by that card, regardless of which version you happen to have or have in play. The best example of which is City of Brass, originally printed in Arabian Nights, since reprinted many, many times as recently as Modern Masters. Now a Modern Masters City of Brass is affected by City in a Bottle. Steve, what do you think about this? Well, I am absolutely delighted by this rules change. Um, is a power level errata in the technical sense that this errata changes the power level of those three cards, City of Bottle, Apocalypse Charm, and Golgothian Silex. But it is a welcome form of a power level errata done for all the right reasons, particularly the potential impact of MTGO, vintage on MTGO. The truth of the matter is that City of Bo- in a Bottle is and has been a vintage playable card, right? Absolutely. It has a very unique effect on the card Bazaar of Baghdad, which is that if you get City of Bottle into play, existing uh, bazaars cease to function, but also your opponent can't even play one, which is just pretty much unprecedented when it comes to effect on lands. Yes, I can't think of another card that can prevent an opponent from actually playing a land. There are some and temporary ones. The hilarious example is Solfatara. That's it just for one turn. But right. <laughs> there are some other conditional weird examples like Ward of Bones. But the the truth of the matter is is that none of them are efficient enough to see play an eternal like City in a Bottle is. I believe City in a Bottle appeared in a vintage championship top eight in the last three years. But the point is that it has clearly been proven, vintage playable. And to be completely candid, Kevin, I think you know this, this is a topic that I have dissuaded other people from from verbalizing many times. (laughs) (laughs) In a sense, I've tried to censor people who talk about this subject because I've had the fear that setting a bottle would be a target for banning. And I hate banning. I hate restriction unless it's really, truly necessary. And I felt that the problems that this card introduced, potentially on Magic Online in particular, and, you know, in other situations like with proxies, was not so great that it really warranted a banning, but rather deserved the kind of attention that they gave it, which I think reflects careful, reasonable consideration and then a judgment as to how to errata it to both quell concerns about its functionality while keeping it as um, playable and functional as possible. So there are any number of ways Wizards could have gone in creating errata or the levers of banned and restricted list policy, but they went in a direction that I think is best for the format. Do you not agree? I agree completely. I think this is the best possible solution for this situation, and and it really just shores up the problem in an intuitive way even, which is even better. And not always the case, but even better. So, yeah, I'm entirely with you. And it just so I'd like our audience to understand your concern just a slightly bit more. The idea was that City in a Bottle, you know, as it stands right now, right before M14 becomes the, the law of the land, you, in a tournament... <laughs> You can change the versions of cards in your deck between rounds. The player, there's almost no call for it. There's almost no reason or need to do it. 
But when we were talking about City in a Bottle uh, amongst ourselves, you and I, Steve, I actually went to a very high-level judge and said, what do you think about this? If if I learn that someone in this tournament is playing City in a Bottle, can I change my Arabian Cities of Brass to Chronicles Cities of Brass in the middle of the event? And he said, well, yes. Chronicles is not a, Chronicles is not a good <sighs> Yes, you're right. To a 7th edition one. Uh, I said, can you change cards for the same name but different versions? And he said, yes, you can. Which is just one example of how prior to M14, City in a Bottle was basically broken for tournament play. Yeah, I mean, there are some cards that you cannot change to a different version because there's only one version of it. But that is certainly a, a concern. That's right. Um, There's no way to get around it with Bazaar of Baghdad. But the fact that that was kind of treatment was allowed means that the card was definitely not functioning as intended or designed. We could debate that. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with you on that, but I do agree that many people shared that concern. <laughs> <laughs> well, the card was the, simpl- the card was developed before reprints with expansion symbols had happened. So it's just like many old right. old laws That's in right. our nation that were developed before sufficient technology to circumvent them was even thought of. <laughs> that's that's not that's not true for cards like Apocalypse Charm. Um, that's true. Good example. Because I mean, for, for many reasons, I think Believe Chronicles had actually been printed roughly around the same time. Not to mention the fact that you know third and fourth edition, revised and fourth edition, where at least revised mm-hmm. had been without expansion symbols. Many cards from antiquities and Arabian Nights revised. But there was there was a series of concerns, not just one concern, about you know the kind of be about and around City in a Bottle and its brethren yep. that I had feared many people in Wizards, judges, organized play would feel the best way to deal with is simply to ban those three cards. And as between all of the potential options they had before them, a policy lever's errata, they chose one that not only preserves its, its availability in the card pool, but actually enhances its playability. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I'm always in favor of doing things that make cards more playable as long as it doesn't make them, you know, broken <laughs> like uh, <laughs> Scorch Ruins or, or um, um, Lotus Veil. Lotus Veil. You know, which, which which I will just direct our, our listeners to our very first episode if they want to hear a very detailed discussion over. <laughs> you know, it seems pretty clear to me in hindsight, Steve, that while City in a Bottle and Golgothian Silex were developed in a pre-reprint environment of sorts, Apocalypse Chime, was, which was clearly developed after reprints were common, is a pretty clear indication that they just never expected to reprint any Homelands cards at all. <laughs> <laughs> So it was it's a tacit admission on the part of Wizards at the time that yeah this set's not very good. <laughs> I don't know about that, but that is funny nonetheless. <laughs> so all of you vintage players out there listening to this, take note if you don't own City in a Bottle, it just got a little bit better. You might want to think about picking up three or four copies. And Steve, you were right. It was in the top eight in Vintage Champs last year at Gen Con. Yeah, the other thing is it's not – I would say it's not just marginally better. I think it's much better. And certainly its impact on Dredge is huge. But let's, let's – I think there's two things to tease out. One is that Dredge uses four city, in a, city of brass. And because it hits every – just our listeners may not understand this. But, for example, Curdape is printed in Arabian Nights, reprinted and revised, reprinted many times. Mm-hmm. City in a Bottle destroys all Curdapes in play and prevents it being played again. Same thing 
with cards like Serendipity or Desert or Library of Alexandria, right? The point, though, is that that um, in 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 this case, it's so much more powerful because the vast majority of the copies of Curdaves out there, the vast majority, right, are not Arabian Nights version. The, the the it is a power level upgrade, but there is one or a few areas in which actually one particular instance in which it is not, and that happens to be the Arabian Nights Mountain. <laughs> but I still consider this to be an improvement because the Arabian Nights Mountain is so awesome <laughs> that I can now play them without fear of having them be destroyed or prevented to be played. <laughs> so um, that the, the Arabian Nights Mountain just got a lot better. No, but, but, but seriously, the, the other thing that I, I think is most important from this, besides the fact that this is a, a huge power level boost, not just a marginal one, is that any confusion about, say, bizarre, uh, bizarre Baghdad proxies, I think is, 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 if not entirely eliminated, largely reduced. So, um, there, you know, for example, one could say, at least an argument, arguendo, this is a proxy of a master edition for bizarre Baghdad, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say fine to that now, right? That the city in the bottle still hits it because it was originally printed in, in Arabian Nights. So there's really no way of escaping the interaction of Bazaar Baghdad and, and City in the Bottle, which is hugely important because Dredge is such a menace to so many players in Vintage. Mm-hmm. This card now, it's every version of City of Brass, every version of Bazaar. That's like eight lands out of their 75-card deck. And not just that, but um, oftentimes um, the proper play would be if you're a, if you're a dredge player the proper play is often going to be you play the the colored land first to destroy their thing and then you play the bazaar well if you do that you could be in big trouble if you keep a hand that has city of brass and bazaar and you play city of brass first because you may never get to discard you may never get to discard with bazaar anytime soon so there's a tactical problem there as well for the dredge player so dredge players are probably going to be forced to to rely a little bit less on city don't you think well that's assuming that city in a bottle becomes significantly more popular which i would be surprised if it became significantly more popular it does still have major drawbacks vis-a-vis Graft Digger's Cage versus the rest of the format. Mm-hmm. So that having been said, I think that dredge players should at least avail themselves of this interaction and what it means. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say take City of Brasses out of your dredge deck or even reduce the numbers just yet, but it's something to consider. All it takes is one matchup in a top eight, like a workshop player who has a couple of city, you know, sitting in the bottles on the sideboard for you to encounter this kind of situation. Oh, well, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. If a good list of, say, a workshop deck becomes popular and heavily played and successful in your area, and that pilot or those pilots are playing City in a Bottle, then it's worth considering that you might have to have answers for that in your deck construction. It's also worth noting that anyone who's planning on playing with or against City in a Bottle should familiarize themselves with the Oracle wording on the card, because the printed wording is basically a non-starter in today's world, and the Oracle wording includes a triggered ability, which would, I think, not be obvious from a intuitive reading of the printed card. Will you elucidate that, please? Whenever a non-token permanent from the Arabian Nights expansion other than City in a Bottle is on the battlefield, its controller sacrifices it. So that's constructed as a triggered ability, meaning if you have 
say, a turn one Bazaar of Baghdad in play, and your opponent plays a city in a bottle, you can use it You response. can use it response, not just to the spell, but even once it's in play. That's probably more relevant when you position it as a answer to City of Brass. So if you, if as you said, Steve, the, the dredge player plays City of Brass as a hedge on the first turn and passes against workshops, if the workshop player then plays City in a bottle, there's a window where the triggered ability happens that you could say nature's claim that's, the city in a bottle. That's important. That's important for dredge players to know. Yeah. Le- less so, less so for workshop players who don't want dredge players to know that. That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, too right. Too right. I actually think the more important thing for city in a bottle um, players and users to know is exactly what has been printed in Arabian. True. That's a good example. As you said with Kurdape, the vast majority of of Kurd apes in existence were not the original Arabian Nights, and a player could play for many years or have been playing for many years without even knowing that. So it's very reasonable for anyone playing vintage these days to just freshen up on what's actually originally printed in Arabian Nights. And the same is true for other cards. I mean, we're not saying that Golgothian Silex is going to see play, but Golgothian Silex has non-trivial interactions with a huge range of playable cards, not to mention Urza Lands. <laughs> That are playable vintage, but they do see play across other formats. That is a fascinating example, Steve. You could end up in a workshop mirror where both players have workshops or two, Mishra's Factories, uh, Triskelion, and Golgothian <laughs> Silex affects all of those cards and, and many yep. more. So. Strip mine. <laughs> Strip mine, yeah. So there could be a, a real defensible game state where Golgothian Silex has a major impact on the board, especially with regard to workshop mirrors. No doubt. But the Silex has not appeared as yet in World's Top 8, so <laughs> we'll see. It's also worth noting that you know cards like even Ornithopter were printed in antiquity. Ornithopter, uh, sometimes he's playing these uh, affinity-type decks. Definitely. It's worth understanding exactly what's from these ancient sets, because you just never know when someone's going to bust out with a Silex or a City in a bottle, and then you might be disappointed to learn something that you didn't before. Well, Steve, it wouldn't be a set review without our report card from our prior set review. And this time, it's Dragon's Maze. Very interesting results. Now, for our listening audience, I've tabulated these results, but Steve hasn't heard them yet. So this is all going to be news to him. And we're going to go pretty pretty quickly through this since we covered these cards in length, obviously. First up is Beck and Call. Steve predicted one. Kevin predicted one. We started doing uh, same predictions this time, which we've kind of avoided in the past. And the actual result was zero, hmm. which is a tie hmm. with a variance of one. If you recall from our conversation, we were expecting and maybe a little hoping that Riley Curran in Ohio would, yeah, I blame Riley. <laughs> would add Beck to his elves list, but it just hasn't happened. So, Riley, sorry, you've let us down. Next up is You're not shocked, are you? No, I'm not terribly shocked. <laughs> Next up is Blood Scrivener, and we don't need to beat around the bush on this one. We both predicted zero and the result was zero, so that's a tie. Same thing for Possibility Storm. We discussed it mostly from a theoretical conceptual standpoint, and but we predicted no copies and there were no copies. Same also for catch and release. We talked about it from a theoretical standpoint mostly and predicted zero and there were zero copies so let's get to the interesting stuff 
Far and away. Lots of flexibility here, which has been very common and popular in vintage of late. Steve predicted eight copies. I predicted six. The actual result was only one, which I'm genuinely surprised about, especially with the rise in popularity of bug lately. I really expected a flexible removal spell such as this would be lots more common, but I think there's been a leaning towards snuff out since the Bizarre bizarre Moxon finals and winner, and something's got to make the cut, so... We'll see. I think far and away we'll crap up a little bit more in the future. Very interesting result for Notion Thief. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted three. Can you believe that the actual Mm. result is 18? No, I'm not surprised. Notion Thief really took off with popularity. Lots of players dove into Notion Thief. I mean, we were very enthusiastic about it, but just skeptical at its casting cost and would see vintage play. Yeah. But uh, I'm not at all surprised. I mean, that's definitely in the higher range. Mm-hmm. But. And to that end, most of the appearances were in the sideboard. Lots of this 18 appearances were just one copy in a sideboard. People testing it out to fight Jace decks mostly. And many of the appearances were in a bug decks, but there was also Esper and Grixis, mostly Dark Confidant decks, actually, that were running Notion Thief, which is no shock. And there were a few rogue appearances that are inflating this number. There's a five-color aggro deck. There was a hermit druid deck. So it might be slightly overstated because there's lots of experimentation going on here. But it seems pretty clear that Notion Thief is here to stay. Next up, Ral Zarek. We both predicted two copies. And there was a surprising six copies. Now, I studied these six lists. (laughs) And the last four appearances, that is the most recent four appearances, were all the same deck. Almost card for card. I, I didn't study them 100%, but the last four most recent Ralzeric appearances were as a one-off in a Grixis Welder Strix deck, which featured Tezzeret Agents of Bolas as well. So he's definitely got a crowd. We'll see if any other decks other than this specific Grixis Strix deck will pick up Ralzeric going forward. Next up, Wear and Tear. You and I both predicted zero, but there was one lonely appearance in a sideboard, two copies actually, in a red, white, and blue Stoneforge Remora deck. So not a standard deck, and this is a decent utility spell if you're in a red, white, and blue deck, I suppose. But we didn't hedge enough quite in this case, and there was one appearance, similar to Rakdos Charm. <laughs> the next one is is your big win, Steve. Sin Collector. I predicted none. You predicted two appearances. Guess what? Two appearances. Right on the nose. <laughs> Both of them were as a one-of in Mayor Fish decks. Mayor of Averbrook were aggro control decks. And there's actually two standouts on this list that came in on that. On a, it's, it's a five-color aggro deck. It's, it's human-based, mostly, with uh, Cavern of Souls, of course. And we'll get to the other one in a minute. Next up, though, is Voice of Resurgence. You and I both predicted zero. The actual was one. There were actually three copies in a Noble Fish variant in one event. So it hasn't caught fire or anything, but someone had a little bit of success with it. We'll see where that goes. Uncovered Clues, nothing noteworthy there. Zeros across the board. And last but not least, Skylasher. A late inclusion in our set review, even, because I thought, well, nobody's going to play with that. I was wrong. Zero, zero for you and me, but there was one appearance in that same five-color Mayor Fish deck. <laughs> one Skylasher. That deck, incidentally, really plays havoc with our prediction numbers because not only is it a five-color deck, but also it has a whole bunch of one-ofs. 
It has one Deathrite Shaman, one Eternal Witness, one Exava Rakdos Blood Witch, one Liev wow. Sky Knight, a single Shardless Agent, which doesn't seem possibly right. Is the, and a, what set is the Blood Witch from? A single Sin Collector. The Blood Witch is from uh, Dragon's Maze. Wow. So, card we did. So were there any card, cards that we had that have appeared in top eights that we did not review besides Blood Witch? Not that I've been able to find in addition to the Blood Witch, no. Okay. So in summary, our little bit of statistical analysis here of our performance, we had lots of ties on this one because you and I predicted zero or, and, and most of them were zeros, but um, you won one, the Sin Collector, over at me, which reduced your median variance to just half of a card, whereas my variance was one card. But the averages were in my favor, 2.6 to 2.1, because I was more accurate on the one of the big hitters, which was you, I was more accurate on Notion Thief, and I was more accurate on Far and Away. You had predicted six copies of Far and Away, and I predicted eight. Yeah. And you predicted three copies of Notion Thief, and I predicted two. That's right. So we were very, very close. We were very close, but I, I was on the side, nearer to the side of correct in both of those cases, which lowered right. my average. But we were we were way off on Notion Thief. Well, I mean, it, I predicted two and three was actually eighteen. Yeah, we we at least recognized it was more than marginally playable, but we didn't quite appreciate how good it was going to be. Yeah, and you know, it's not quite the same as Deathrite Shaman, where I entirely poo pooed it, and you said this could be good. <laughs> you again, like yeah, what, you and I just I think hedged too much with regard to how many people would adopt Notion Thief. Yeah, I mean, I, with Deathrite Shaman, I predicted at least like six copies, right, or something. I predicted a large number, but Deathrite Shaman has proven to be quite good. But the situations though are significantly different, though. Deathrite Shaman, when it sees play, is a three or four of in the main deck, and it's structural to how the deck is built and plays. Notion Thief, however, these 18 appearances, I didn't do I didn't count them up, but probably 10 to 12 of those 18 are just one copy in a sideboard. It's it's fascinating here that you that my median variance is better than yours, but my average variance is worse. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's because of the sin collector. You did so much better on that sin collector than I did that it tilted the median in your favor. But I was closer on the ones that we discussed and and had larger than one numbers on, basically. So in retrospect, folks should buy from or to complete their collection. Notion Thief is the is the far and away winner from Dragon's Maze. It seems pretty clear now. Definitely. And in second place, somewhat surprisingly, maybe is Ralz Eric. Yeah. Again, both of those are really only showing up as one ofs, so you don't need a whole playset necessarily, but you should at least have them. I mean, is it fair to say though that Notion Thief was the card we were most excited about? I mean, we, we talked about it in the context of Jace, all kinds of things, right? Yeah, I, yeah, we had the largest discussion about it, but we weren't expecting players to adopt it as much. We actually predicted collectively more copies of Far and Away because we were anticipating a lot of blue-black utility players to really just yeah. lean on that card. So we sort of received the reversed results. I would have predicted if you'd asked me to pick the two results that 18 people would have put one copy of Far and Away in their sideboard (laughs) and more people would have played a single Notion Thief in their main deck. But anyway, the the simple fact is, is that Far and Away did not catch on yet as a utility spell 
And you're right, Notion Thief has been widely embraced by the community. It would be interesting to see which of these cards appeared in Legacy. Maybe I'll go back and look at that at some point. In my written set review, I said the following cards I expect to appear in Vintage Top 8s over the next three to six months. I said one to two Far and Away, one to two Notion Thief, and one to two Sin Collector. Then I said the following cards are Vintage Playable that may or may not appear in Vintage Top 8s in the near future. One to two Ralzeric, X Skylasher, and two to three Voice of Resurgence. So the six cards that I identified as people picking up were all cards that appeared. Top eight, so that's a pretty good prediction on my part. Yep. For my written set review. Another good track record. I had um, also identified some cards for Legacy, including Notion Thief, which has done some very, you know, was actually a, had a famous Star City Games top eight play. But um, anyway, um, good, good, good uh, checking up, Kevin. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for doing it for us and our audience. Another pretty successful review. Let's move on to M14. M14, like the last several core sets, is a mixture of reprints and new cards, in this case 112 new cards. So there aren't quite as many things for us to review from a new card standpoint, but we do have a couple of really interesting and densely packed examples of vintage playables here. We couldn't start out an M14 set review without talking about the new headliner for the set, Chandra Pyromaster. Now we've got a forecasting cost Chandra here, Four loyalty, red, red, two for the casting costs. And her abilities are plus one. Chandra Pyromaster deals one damage to target player and one damage to up to one target creature that player controls. That creature can't block this turn. Zero, exile the top card of your library. You may play it this turn. And minus seven, exile the top ten cards of your library. Choose an instant or sorcery card. Exile this way and copy it three times. You may cast the copies without paying their mana cost. Finally, a red planeswalker with a good repeatable card advantage ability. And also, while it does not kill a lodestone golem, the first ability at least kills Bob, Snapcaster, Welder, Hierarch, Thalia, Mayor, Selkie, Strix, Thief, Click, a fair number of heavily played vintage creatures, top of the list being Dark Confidant. And also, what's kind of nice is that they structured it such that if your opponent has no creature, it still does something, it does one damage to them, which can be relevant against, say, Jace, or any other Planeswalker and ticking it down. Also, if the creature that they have in play can't be killed by the one damage, it has the nice bonus of making it unable to block. So yeah. if you're playing against, I don't know, a, a mid-range deck, a, a, an aggro control deck that has Trigon Predator or Tarmogoyf or some other thing, if you feel the need to get through that creature, the one damage will still make it unable to block and you can attack their Jace. So it, this Chandra really actually plays pretty well in the face of Jace the Mind Sculptor too, which is kind of humorous. You can It can actually hit an opposing Planeswalker, right? Yes, that's also what true. The one damage that you do to them could be redirected to Jace as well. So you can ping their creature and their Planeswalker, which is cool. And in addition to all of that, if they had a creature that's still there, you could make that creature... You can't kill a creature and make another one unblockable. But if the creature you hit is still alive, you could. it can't stop your creature from coming in on their Jace as well. 
Well, that's an excellent analysis, Kevin. So what is what do you think in terms of playability? I think this is really borderline. I think the prior four-mana version of Chandra saw a little bit of play. Arfentheo, in fact, uh, tried to get some of that fork action going on Gush and other restricted spells with the prior Chandra. And it's right on the edge. I think that with the significant popularity of multicolor aggro humans decks these days, I think this ping ability is pretty darn relevant in that context and the omnipresence of Bob and Snapcaster, of course. I just think if it's going to be played, it's going to be a one of in addition to other planeswalkers, maybe similar to how Ralph Eric is played today. And it won't, it won't amount to much. Another interesting part of the ability, though, is that the card advantage you get from the middle ability, the zero ability, where you can reveal a card and play it, does not play well with a reactive deck. So it's not like Jace the Mind Sculptor, where you can play a reactive deck and build up insurmountable card advantage over the course of a few turns. This card, if you reveal a mana drain to that second ability, you're going to be, you just lost your mana drain, basically. Same with a, also needs to, go ahead. same with several other reactive cards like answers like lightning bolt or Ingachu yeah. or other things. Yeah. Well, okay. So I think there are a couple things to hone in on here. Let's start with the casting costs. There aren't many four casting cost red spells that actually see play in vintage. There are a few mm-hmm. empty the warrants, but there are really none at this casting cost, which is two red red. So you can't drain into it as easily with the double red mana requirement. Um, it's just a little bit more difficult, especially since red is almost always a tertiary color, not a primary or secondary color. I do like the fact, though, and I think it's relevant, that it starts with more loyalty than the other Chandra. Mm, good point. The four, even if you activate the zero the turn you play it, it's still out of lightning bolt range. Yeah. Um, I think, I think actually, this does sort of inhibit that Twilight Zone border borderline area. <laughs> But, but, and, and I think there, you just can't underestimate the immediate card advantage at zero either. So that puts it, you know, it, it puts it in a very elite exclusive club and that it can generate card advantage immediately without losing loyalty. So that puts it in the, the class of cards like Ace Hazaret, Agent of Bulloth, right? Mm-hmm. But that zero ability is still not entirely reliable, of course. You can't it could be a land. Might have already played a land. Yeah, and if you're playing this card it's... aggressively and you play it on turn three or four, you get any spell that costs more than zero. The odds are likely that you won't be able to play that spell. And if it's a counter spell and your opponent doesn't play any spells, <laughs> then it's not usable anyway. So yep. yeah, it's not, it's not uh, 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 incredibly reliable. Play, but at least has the potential to do something. So I guess the question is, is this source of card advantage better than the previous one, which forks at minus two? I'd say it's probably comparable. What do you think? Yeah, I would give the nod to this one. That one requires setup. It requires something relevant to fork. And this one requires very little. You untap with this in play, and assuming your deck is built correctly, there shouldn't be anything in your deck that you don't want to reveal with that second ability. That said, yeah. I don't think this goes just... You can't just slot this into Grixis Control these days. The modern Grixis Control deck or Snapcaster Control decks have a lot of cards that you wouldn't want to reveal with this. So I think this is just another one of those many cards that demands a slightly different deck construction. And I think Tezzeret Agent of Bolas is a fantastic comparison. You have to tweak your deck and increase the artifact count to make that guy reliably good. And players have done it, and it's been decent, and it's had some success. 
And I think if you're going to play this Chandra, you're going to have to do something similar. You're going to have to have more proactive control elements if you want to be considered or trying to play the control role. Okay, so put your, uh, how many copy appearances do you think there will be in in Vintage Top 8 over the next couple months? I think because of the card advantage that you described and because of the one damage ability being very flexible, as flexible as a one damage ability can be, I think somebody's going to give this a try. I'm going to predict one copy. You put me in a very difficult position, Kevin. <laughs> um, I, I think you you may be right, but um, I just don't. I think red is at such a low ebb right now. I don't see people playing this at the double red casting cost. I think that the card advantage is is useful, but too limited. I'm going to say zero. All right. I think if I had to take the over under on one, I would take the under. So I think that's fair. Next is Glimpse the Future, yet another in a long line of three-mana blue card-drawing spells. This one is Sorcery for two and a blue. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one of them into your hand and the rest into your graveyard, which is the exact oracle text of strategic planning. (laughs) And for those it's, of you who also a yeah, and for those of you who have been with the format for a while, you'll know that strategic planning definitely had its day, a flash in the pan, if you will, of playability at the Vintage Champs several years ago. This is strategic planning at the cost of one more mana, which I think suggests how much play it's going to see. If strategic planning sees zero play at the moment, then there's no reason to think this will see play. Agreed. But but it is nonetheless interesting that they would they would print it, and it's also worth thinking about. You know where that line between playability and unplayability is. I think one of the features of the playable cards are is that they all they always net at least one card. So the cards that see play like thirst and, and thirst arguably actually nets two because you want to deposit the artifact into the graveyard. But in each case, at least in some in some instances, but in each case the playable cards generate at least one additional card advantage. And that's why strategic planning saw play is that it was in welder decks and you were getting virtual card advantage out of putting cards into your graveyard, and it was one of the cheapest effects to do that without directly losing card advantage, a la careful study. Yep. Steve, when it comes to three-mana blue sorceries that just draw cards, though, if it's not a draw seven, like Time Twister or Windfall, or a tutor, like Intuition, or significant card advantage, like Meditate then the, the window of playability is pretty small. Yep. Yeah, that's, and, and again, all those things have the one thing in common. They net at least one card. Exactly. And strategic planning really only saw play because it cost two mana, and it fit the sweet spot of the deck that it was in at the time, strategic slaver, with being able to have a turn one play and then have drain up on turn two, yep. which this glimpse the future simply cannot facilitate. I don't think we need to take it much further. I'm predicting zero copies, yes? Yep. All right. I don't expect any surprises there. Next on our list, though, is a card that could go one of a million different directions, and for my money is the most, I think, interesting card in this set for Vintage. That being Young Pyromancer. Colorless and red, creature, human, shaman. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, put a 1-1 red elemental creature token onto the battlefield, and it is 2-1. Steve, this is all kinds of exciting, and there's all kinds of precedents, too, for this triggered ability that this creature has. And it's one that you are yeah. no stranger to, given the likes of Query and Dryad. I think... Yeah, I feel, I feel a little bit like Jack Nicholson's The Joker in the Batman film when he first sees the pictures of uh, Vicky Vale. <laughs> he says, stop the press, stop the press. <laughs> Who is this? 
This card, I mean, I, I don't want to be overly, overly hyperbolic here, but this card is pretty incredible. I think it, I think it, I'll just say at the outside, I think it completes the super cycle that so many legacy players have been pining for. That is of, uh, creatures at this, at the two mana casting cost, one of the colorless in each color. So you have Bob, you have Tarmogoyf, uh, Snapcaster Mage. Uh, I'm not sure what the white one is. Dave. Stoneforge. Stoneforge, sorry, Stoneforge Mystic, yeah. yeah. I think this is the red one. This, this card is, this card is pretty incredible. The precedent is set for creatures with bodies, small bodies usually, that grow when you play instants or sorceries. Those are Kiln Fiend, Query and Dryad, to a lesser extent, Blister Coil Weird. The currently popular... Yeah, the currently popular Talrand, Gutter Snipe, which we reviewed recently, as well as Nymagus Elemental, which is in that family, although it doesn't exactly have a trigger. We've reviewed all of those cards and discussed their relevance with Vintage, but there's one thing that this card specifically shares with Talrand, which is that it creates additional permanence. And, And by virtue of the fact that Young Pyromancer costs half as much and has the same power as Talran does, means you're just getting a lot of upside from the speed of this card. Yeah. Um, now, it's not blue, but it's also only one designated red. This is the kind of card that makes me have to rewrite my gush book. <laughs> Again, I know I'm, I'm piling uh, dry wood under the fire here, but uh, this is this is just unbelievable. Um, I'll, just, I'll just dive in, right? So, Query and Dryad. Quirion Dryad is like one of the great creatures of all time. You know, put up huge appearances and extended, won vintage championships. Um, you know, one of the things that made Quirion Dryad so good, I mean, it was, it was obviously in a set that emphasized multicolor, so that it, any color, other color spell, I and mean, you had very few green spells, just made it grow. And so you could very quickly use the Gush Bond engine to make it fairly enormous. At the time, you would, I mean, the first iteration of Gush, we used cards like Berserk to make Quirion Dryad or a Psychotog lethal. Um, the, the format... You no longer need a single creature. In fact, a single creature is a liability in a format with Jace. But a but a creature that has a similar effect but distributes. If you if you like, think about distributing these counters vertically or horizontally. You can imagine the Query and Dryad distributes them vertically by sort of piling them on top of itself. Whereas this card does the same thing, but it does it distributes them horizontally. It creates them across the battlefield, and that horizontal distribution of the same effect. Is that it actually is, is more powerful in the current format because of cards like Chase, because of the way Dredge works, because of the workshops. This is truly a very nearly unstoppable force if you just get a couple activations. You know, with this in play, if you have pitch magic in hand, there's nothing really your opponent can do from stopping you from getting lots of creatures tokens on the battlefield. This thing is very potent. I like the point you just made about horizontal versus vertical because one of the strengths of dredge in today's environment, in addition to being able to win games without playing a spell, is that horizontal aspect of it. Vintage decks currently are generally ill-equipped to deal with a large number of creatures. And by large, I mean more than two. There's not much mass removal that's played at all. The best There's the engineer explosives, and that's about it. I was it. just going to say, explosives is pretty much it. And while explosives is highly relevant against a bunch of creature tokens, it's it's useful against dredge and will be relevant against this guy. If you get this card into play and then manage to play just a couple of instants, even if you fight over the explosives with, say, a force of will, and you know, heaven forbid, you actually have some mana untapped to do things like fluster storm or or what have you, just fighting over the explosives means you get one or two tokens out of this guy, and it makes their explosives 
that much worse. You basically have nullified the value of it. Right. The, the explosives has to hit the creatures that this thing generates. It can't hit itself because it, this thing is a two one as opposed to like you could easily have six zero one six one ones on the table. <laughs> so, so the explosives is just playing cleanup on this guy. Right. Uh, it, it's not just even explosives. It's, it's you know like I said, it's like things like Jace. You know, too. I mean, granted, you know, a dryad could get larger than a blightsteel colossus, but this thing, this thing can can you know overwhelm a blightsteel colossus. Yeah, and so. By virtue of the fact that vintage decks are not good at answering multiple permanents, multiple creature permanents, this creature and its effect becomes just very useful against the vast majority of vintage decks. It's great against workshops because you've got guys to chump block with. This plus one other guy trades with a lodestone. It's also good against workshops because they run tangle wire and you can actually just get over on them in terms of number of permanents. Let's just illustrate. Let's just stop for a second and illustrate one of the points you just made. So you go Mox land this guy on turn one against workshops, mm-hmm. and then you force their first threat. You now have three power worth of guys in play already. Exactly. Not just three power worth of guys. You have four permanents yeah. already. Yeah. And they have they have nothing relevant, potentially. <laughs> yeah, they can't just slow you down now by going landmarks land lodestone and you force it. They can't just buy all that tempo back by playing a turn two tangle wire like they can in many other contexts. You're going to be off to playing spells under the tangle wire at that point. And as soon as you can play one other spell, get this guy and two, and two elemental tokens, then that tangle wire is almost completely nullified on your side of the board. Yep. Incredibly synergistic at fighting workshops. Yeah, this guy is just the best the best anti-workshop grow creature I've ever seen. Yeah, so much better to be horizontal than permanent against workshops. Exactly. And then, but to carry on to that, the creatures you generate from this are not as good as the zombies that Dredge generates. That's no surprise there. But but being horizontal against Dredge is also much better. If they yep. get the, the drop on you and get several zombies in play, you can either try to trade with their key creatures like Icarids to, to prevent the damage, or you can tactically set up situations where you're removing their bridges before they get all their tokens, if you have instant speed sacrifice or removal of some kind. So the fact that this generates creatures just helps you against Dredge no matter how you slice it. Yeah. And then generally speaking, it's also just great against Grixis control and other control decks that are trying to kill you with bobs or even utilize bobs <laughs> and utilize planeswalkers. You want to be horizontal yep. against planeswalkers as well. Exactly. Yeah, the only way and the only place really where being horizontal is a great disadvantage is against Oath. And that's something that a young Pyromancer deck would have to figure out how to address, but you can do that. Easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this effect is everywhere you want to be in vintage. <laughs> it's just a yep. matter of can you build a good deck around it? Talrand is very common these days. It's usually only a one of, but it's appeared more than a dozen times in vintage top eights already this year with no sign of stopping. This is the best gosh creature in existence right now. <laughs> so, I wrote the book on it. <laughs> <laughs> quite literally. My so, question to you then, as someone with that experience, what ways do you deviate from a traditional quote unquote gush approach given the specific nature of the horizontal nature of this guy? Do you include more things that focus on the creatures like skull clamp or cobble therapy? How do you maximize this creature given that it's horizontal versus vertical? Um, well, I think, you know, queer and dried is in, in cards of that ilk are, are so disadvantaged because of their vertical nature. They did, you know, like a, a kiln fiend is just neutered by a single bolt. Yeah. And et cetera. Whereas this card is basically like the ideal printing for a grow creature these days. He's just, he, because of his horizontal nature, he's exactly what you want in a grow deck. I mean, 
he, he does everything you want. He he is just like Dryad in that when you build the critical mass and go off with Yawgmoth's will, it's overwhelming. You know, you just it's not that difficult to reach lethal with this guy. I think right the same way with a Dryad. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is get to get it to you know nine or ten tokens in play, and then you just time walk Yog will time walk. <laughs> um, oh, is that all? <laughs> but, but but in the case of um, he does so much more because of the way he interfaces with against workshops. So he actually gives Grow a, a strong viable play against shops. So I think he 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 boosts Grow against shops and is basically the best Grow creature for that reason. How absolutely filthy is this card against shops in conjunction with Ancient Grudge? Yeah, that's that's the thing is that actually the best anti-shop card in red is Ingotjur, which he doesn't do well with. So that's the only negative I see on him. He is disgusting with Ancient Grudge, but don't you want to be using Ingotjur and Trigon Predator? Or m- maybe not now. Maybe you just go to Grudge. I, you're completely right. The best card is Ancient Grudge. I'm sorry, is Ingotjur. I would say it has everything to do with how the rest of your deck is constructed, but if Ingot Chewer is getting you to this card or getting you to the instants and sorceries that go along with this card, then you still clearly run Ingot Chewer. But, man, I wouldn't be surprised to see players mixing Ingot Chewer with other instants. Steel Sabotage, Nature's Claim, Ancient Grudge, Shattering Spree, and once you can get over the hump, so Ingot Chewer is needed to get over the hump in all these situations against shops, but then I would imagine that players are going to be running ancillary effects as well. well you might not, there might not even be a hump anymore. That's the thing. <laughs> this card, once, I mean, in a sense, all you have to do is get this in play and then be able to play a spell every once in a while and really clog up the board. Uh, yeah, I think I mean, there will more, be some games against shops where that what you just described is literally good enough. It, it's important for our listening audience to keep in mind, shops doesn't always open with workshop mox lodestone. There are other openings that they have. And right. this guy, like, just opening with a sphere. So they just opened with a sphere, and you play a land and a mox, maybe, or if you're lucky, two moxen. Then they play a tangle wire, and maybe you you duke it out resource-wise for a little while, or maybe they play metalworker. If you can sneak this guy in in one of those key turns where you've got a window, then on your upkeep, even with a tangle wire on the stack, you play just one instant. Doesn't matter what it is, even brainstorm. You know, heaven forbid it be nature's claim or something. But even a brainstorm at that juncture puts you more than a turn ahead in terms of the, their tangle wire, and you could find yourself on the next turn untapping with most of your lands untapped, and you just suddenly realize that this card has functioned as removal for you for that tangle wire. Yeah, I have a much more difficult time imagining what this thing does in Legacy, but it's got to be impactful. Definitely. And in Legacy, just think about Rug Delver. Yeah, exactly. You could go... But Rug Delver, this, this guy can clog a Tarmogoyf every turn forever. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Yeah, imagine a Delver list that eschews the green, focuses more on burn, perhaps. Or at least just yeah. tempo plays. Forget burn, just tempo plays. Yeah. How good is remand with this guy? Jeez. Good boy. Yeah, in Legacy, I would not see, be surprised to see this be a major splash, and people would have to really adjust. Um, well... I do think, though, there may be some of these other uses like Skull Clamp, but I think his primary potential is Rodak and Vintage. Are there any other creatures on the list of historically similar creatures that you would play with this card? Would you pair it with Talrand, for example? Maybe Gutter Snipe? Nope. nope. Do you think this is the only creature in that deck? Well, the other creature in the deck might be like Tinker Colossus or something. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) You get a Colossus and a (laughs) (laughs) 1-1. 
What do you think about um, cobalt therapy? Do you think it's worth doing? I mean, it's certainly a, a, a huge synergy. Um, it may be, actually. It may be. That's pretty amusing. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for cobalt therapy. I just played it in the Team Serious Open. I got second place in a couple weeks ago. I think it's a somewhat underutilized card outside of Dredge in Vintage. But that notwithstanding, it just has extra special synergy with this card. Yeah, this guy is a nightmare for a land still, which is only a good thing. Anyone wants to play creatures? (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think it's time to put some numbers down on paper. And since, uh, since I went first on Chandra... And Glimpse doesn't count. I think you should go first on this one. Um, the Vintage Championship is going to be after our next set review, right? Well, the Vintage Championship is in November. Yes, Theros will be out by then. Because okay, I was going to count myself. I'm going to win the Vintage Championship with this card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, though, I think um, I don't know how quickly people will pick it up. If, if I um, if I decide to play it sometime soon, I'm pretty sure I'll top eight with it. Keep in mind that Talrand has appeared in top eights between 12 and 15 times in 2013 so far. Okay, I'm going to say, I think, so our next set review is Theros, which is should come in October. So that gives us a, a three-month window. I'm going to say 13 top eight copy appearances. All right. Respectable, respectable. Hard to argue with that. Um, just now the question is, I wasn't quite thinking so many, but now that I think about it, we underestimated Notion Thief, and that was just appearing as one-ofs. But that's a more of a sideboard situation. I don't know how many people... Gush is very popular, but I don't know how many people are going to go straight to this and stick with it. So, hmm. I know this is going to be popular. I know people are interested in it. But I don't feel like it's going to become quite so ubiquitous in the next three months. Hmm. I'm going to go with 10. No. Oh. <laughs> Grow. I'm not just taking the under with 12, but I am taking I mean, the under. The, the, the first number that actually came to my mind was 9. <laughs> so, I, I mean, like I thought of like a 9 to 13 range. But you were trying to not underestimate it? Yeah, I don't want to underestimate yeah. it. I mean, the way my thinking is, you know, it only takes a couple people in Europe to try it, and then you get a, a few more copycats, and then by the time, by the end of September, you have, you know, eight or nine European copies and three to four American copies, and there you are. Mm-hmm. The thing that's keeping, that's having me take the under is that this card doesn't have the pure baked-in card advantage of, say, a Dark Confidant or a Snapcaster. Sure. It clearly has dark card advantage, don't get me wrong, but I just think that some people are going to shy away from it. Some people are going to playtest some games, they're going to make three guys on turn two, and they're going to think, hey, this is great, and then they're going to lose that game, and they're going to say, well, maybe this card's not all that. <laughs> yep. So I think it's going to keep some people stymied or frustrated, but I think enough players are going to gush with it that it'll be popular. All right, my nomination for the coolest card in M14, because <laughs> it really speaks to me in a mechanical way, is Strionic Resonator. Pretty simple in concept. Two mana artifact. The ability is two comma tap. Copy target triggered ability you control. You may choose new targets for the copy. So now we have copying triggered abilities on tap, literally. Harkens back to Rings of Bright Hearth, which copies activated abilities. And it also reminds me of Sundial of the Infinite in the way that it just monkeys with simple functions in the rules of the game. But we have some pretty popular triggered abilities in Vintage, namely Storm, also Cascade, and every other card in Workshop decks. So Steve, do you think the triggered abilities in Vintage are worth paying two mana plus two mana to double up on? 
I'll throw it back at you. What do you think? Honestly, no. I do not think that this is going to end up popular enough. The co- what, what would have to be the casting cause to, to try and get the most out of it? What, the casting... You were designed. What, you know, let's just say the, the absolute lowest this could be would be zero mana, and it would just tap to activate. <laughs> yep. That card would, I think, be playable. But at two mana plus two to activate, the two to activate really stands out to me because that kind of really diminishes its playability in workshops where you might want this card just for value. You might want to, you, you might have without the two mana activation thought of a workshop deck that could have tangle wires and smokestacks and a few other things that we don't use today, doubling up on them to really hurt your opponent. Two mana activation means you can't do it with a workshop. So I think that hurts that aspect. When it comes to Storm, 4 mana, 2 plus 2 even, just to double your Storm. So taking you from, say, 5 spells to 10, I don't see it. If you had 4 mana in Storm, I would say just play a better card. What if this card said copy triggered or activated ability? Ooh. All other things being the way they are, that would be much more playable, especially in workshops. Because then you could get all the benefits of duplicating your Wasteland effects and other activated abilities that have board... Like Cold Delta. Yeah, like Forge Master and other key things that impact the board, plus the triggers of a Tangle Wire or a Smokestack. Yeah, if you could do both of those, I would be taking a second look at it for workshops. But just the triggers... Triggers are actually... Obviously, there are triggers all over the place in vintage games, but permanents that are designed and intended that have impactful effects from their triggers are actually not the majority in workshop decks these days because smokestack is not the default anymore like it was many years ago. You, if you had a card, Rings of Brightheart used to work with Time Vault, I believe. So if you had a card that just like this, the copy, triggered or activated abilities, you'd be able to use it with Time Vault to take infinite turns, right? Rings still does work with Time Vault because Time Vault taps to give you two a, a turn, and if you duplicate that, you get two turns, and you can skip one of them to the Time Vault. Untap. Yeah. Yeah. So Rings plus Time Vault, if you can manage to untap the Time Vault once... <laughs> which is still which, goes uh, which is the rub still goes infinite but if you have something that untaps the time vault then you're going infinite already in modern vintage so that's why that combo doesn't ever really see any play yeah i agree with you. i think i just think the sum the summative mana investment in this card is just too great yeah I mean, maybe if it was like two and one activation or two and just tap or maybe one and one or something like that it would be a much much more attractive card. Yeah, I agree completely. We've said many times, and our listeners should recall, that artifacts are inherently cheaper in Vintage due to the presence of Mishra's Workshop, but the two-mana activation on this really serves to counteract that. So this artifact really does... It's easier to use in Vintage because of the Moxon, clearly, and because you have lands that tap for two, clearly, but... The simple fact is, is you can't really abuse this from a converted mana cost standpoint like you can for most other artifacts. And as such, it's just too much of an investment just to get the incremental value out of a card like this, as opposed to something like, say, Staff of Nin, where you can cheat the mana cost, and then once it's in play, you're getting all the incremental benefit without doing anything more. You know, it's ironic. I don't think many people are comparing Strionic Resonator to Staff of Nin and their other set reviews. <laughs> but in Vintage, yeah. that's the kind of comparison you need to make. You'd much rather mm-hmm. cheat the cost up front for a big artifact than get a value one that requires you to pump difficult mana into it every turn. Compare this, for example, to Karn. Just Karn Silver Golem, I mean. 
the mana you spend on Karn, every one of those mana is removing a permanent of your opponent's or animating a big artifact of yours and doing significant damage. That's a really efficient use of onboard mana that's also not restricted to the quantity. You can use it for one or two or three. Mm -hmm. This one, I think it's just too restrictive to get the value in a shop deck. Yeah, I agree. That said, there may be a quirky other triggered ability that's really powerful in the future. Oath of Druids, for example, you can copy. Now, obviously, much like everything we just said for workshops, a single activation of Oath is probably enough in Vintage these days. But things like that, where you get a really abusive effect for having two copies of something, we'll see. Rings of Bright Hearth hasn't broken through. Sundial the Infinite hasn't broken through. We just got to keep it on our radar. Steve, you went first for Young Pyromancer, but I don't think there's much to say about this one. I'm predicting zero. Yeah, I'm on zero. All right. Also, I tweeted to several Wizards employees trying to contact the research and development team for M14 as to where the name Strionic Resonator came from. Because near as I can figure, Strionic is not a word. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was laughing to myself as I was typing up notes for this show because I was thinking of referring of I was referring to calling this card the uh, the Cromulent Resonator <laughs> because I'm a giant fan of the word Cromulent invented by the Simpsons and this card yeah, basically just invented verbiage. But invented ac- uh, adjectives are some of my favorite. Magic is well known for inventing nouns, both proper and improper, but inventing adjectives, that's not nearly so common. <laughs> so the cromulent resonator it is. Next up we have imposing sovereign. This is a creature, one colorless white creature human, emphasis mine, creatures your opponent control, sorry, opponents control, enter the battlefield tapped, and it is 2-1, right in the sweet spot for hate bears and vintage, at a single designated mana and a 2-1 body, and compared to blind obedience, which we did not expect much from, but did actually see some play in a white X aggro deck as a disruptive element. You think that the Sovereign is good enough to, cr- to break through the barrier of playable green and white X hate bears? Yeah, I do. I think that uh, it's it, it, it meets the basic requirements of being disruptive and tempo-oriented. I don't know if it's going to see a lot of play, but I do think it will see some. As creature decks, especially human Cavern of Souls decks, become more popular, the ability to disrupt your opponent's creatures could be of increasing relevance in Vintage. Also, this card has a hilariously disruptive effect against Dredge. If your Dredge-playing opponent sees this across the table from them, good luck killing you with Icarids or Bridge from Below tokens. Right, right. What do, you, what do you think, Kevin? Do you think this card's going to see... Uh, do you think this card is meets the threshold for vintage playability? Yep, I do think it meets the threshold, and I think your assessment is right on. It, it will probably see a little bit of fringe play. As demonstrated by the last several set reviews, Cavern of Souls decks, mostly humans-centered, are getting more and more popular, and these niche creatures just are seeing little bits of play here and there as people test different configurations out and try to attack their local metagames in different ways. Sin Collector is a good example. Voice of Resurgence, Skylasher, I mean, anything that really even loosely fits into this definition of hate bear is being experimented with. And so this one clearly meets the criteria of castability, has a relevant effect, and it has some powerful effects in certain matchups. 
and I think someone's going to experiment with it. I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see in the low single digits of copies. I'd go on the safe yep. side. This one's not very powerful. I would go on the safe side and say one. Yeah, yeah I'm going to say the same number. I think it's interesting though that the ty- the name of the creature <laughs> is a little bit misleading. This is hardly a sovereign, right? <laughs> this guy's just some random dude. Well, yeah, I'm kind of with you. This it's interesting. How do you how do you demonstrate in a magic card functionally or flavor wise the importance that comes with that title? It looks like people are giving this person respect. It looks like a woman. It looks like people are generally paying attention to this woman. But there's nothing really else. I mean, this kind of implies coming into the battlefield tapped implies more, I don't know, more of a physical ailment or something than just reverence. (laughs) I don't know. But hey, we'll see. Next, we should talk about Mind Sparker. This is an interesting one. An effect that people seem, you would say at face value, I think most people would say, oh, yeah, that's like this or that's like that. But it's actually more unique than you might at first think. Mind Sparker is a creature. One red, red, creature elemental. First strike, whenever an opponent casts a white or blue instant or sorcery spell, Mind Sparker deals two damage to that player, and it is three, two. Now, you were talking about Chandra's casting cost. One red, red. Is there anything that sees play at that particular mana cost in Vintage lately? Not that, I've, not that I know of. I think the last time something saw play at that mana cost, it was Pillage. <laughs> It's the last thing that's that sees play at that casting cost is Shattering Spree copied under a sphere. <laughs> I think you're correct. <laughs> so, you know, it's funny that, like I said, people think of this kind of punishing mechanic as pretty common. But the simple fact is, this particular configuration is unique. It punishes white and blue directly, which is obviously stands out. But the simple phrase, whenever an opponent casts, is actually not as common as you might think in Magic. There are plenty of effects that punish players whenever a player casts, but go ahead and give a search for whenever an opponent casts, or whenever an opponent, whenever opponent casts, including damage or, or life loss, and mm-hmm. you won't find very many cards. In fact, it's funny, the closest comparison is one that I really like from Legends, which is the Ichnuman Druid. Similar casting cost, one green, green. Ichnuman Druid deals four damage to any opponent casting an instant. <laughs> this does not apply to the first instant cast by that opponent in each turn, which is hilarious. Go, go, legends. There have been several enchantments that had similar effects, like Havoc, whenever target opponent successfully casts a white spell. Yawgmoth Edict for white spells, which is a train life effect. But a creature, boy, the closest comparison to this, aside from the druid itself, is actually Kervik, which is huge and unplayable in Vintage. So as creatures go, and as narrowly targeted to hurting your opponents go, and triggering off of blue instants or sorceries go, it seems like this creature has a lot of upside in Vintage. But the mana cost, combined with the average body, 3-2, it's, a little, it's bigger than the two mana creatures we play, but... I don't know. I just don't find it that threatening, honestly. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't. I think this card is worth talking about, but I don't think it's really worth playing. The, we've had lots of red cards come through our reviews over the years, and the simple fact is is that red is played mostly as a splash, 
mostly for really role-playing cards like Ingot Chewer, Lightning Bolt. <laughs> and this card is more of a sideboard card that would have to go into an aggro deck, basically. You could be really next level and bring mm. this in, say, in a Landstill Mirror kind of situation, <laughs> which would be hilarious, and you're already playing enough red, I suppose. Right. But honestly, if you're going to pay three mana for a card in a Landstill Mirror, you'd probably want Vendillion Click. <laughs> so... While this is a pretty splashy effect and would really disrupt several vintage games, I think there's no deck that it goes in. I'm predicting zero copies. I'm with you. All right. Next is one that I wouldn't have even brought up if it wasn't for the research surrounding our Dragon's Maze set review, and that's Banisher Priest. Now, this is the Fiend Hunter lookalike, Fiend Hunter being from Innistrad. Banisher Priest is one white-white creature, human cleric, when Banisher Priest enters the battlefield, exile target creature and opponent controls until Banisher Priest leaves the battlefield, 2-2. Now, it's nearly identical to Hunt, Fiend Hunter, but it has two more power. And Fiend Hunter has seen some play in aforementioned multicolor Cavern of Souls humans decks. Logic tells me that if anyone's going to play Fiend Hunter, those players would probably be more excited to play Banisher Priest, given the twice as much power. So... I think this is going to see some niche play in those Mayor of Aberbrook-style decks, but it's probably a one-of or a two-of in those kind of decks, and those kind of decks make top eights only once every quarter or so. So I think we're going to see the over-under is probably on one. I'm going to say one appearance. So this guy, it, Fiend Hunter is only a 1-1, one, one, but it's the same casting cost. Fiend Hunter is 1-3. One, 1-3, three. One, three, sorry. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, this is better than Fiend Hunter, so... But better than a card that's seen just scant few appearances in really niche decks. So I don't know how to interpret that. I'm going to say two copies. Oh, spicy. For reference, according to Morphling.D, Fiend Hunter has well, five appearances so far this year. So it's seeing play as a really niche effect in mostly Cavern of Souls aggro type decks. So who knows? You may be right. It may be more than just the niche appearance. Next up, we have Necropotence 5.0, which is Dark Same. Prophecy. Black, black, black enchantment. Whenever a creature you control dies, you draw a card and lose a life. Now, if it hadn't been for the recent vintage, the New York Stack Exchange Open 1 that you participated in and we reviewed, if it hadn't been for the Workshop Aggro deck featuring Genesis Chamber, <laughs> I wouldn't have even considered this card. Not that those two decks or this card and that deck are going to coexist, but it got my radar up with regard to decks that could play or produce a lot of creatures. I don't think there's a place in Vintage for a, a black, black, black effect that isn't Necropotence, but yep. just in case I'm wrong, what do you make of this card? Yeah, this strikes me. It has all the characteristics and features of an unplayable black enchantment that, you know... Um, I mean, I hear you with your point about uh, Genesis Chamber, but even if you could somehow get your opponent to go way overboard on that, it's not going to kill them. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to... Let me rephrase that. Um, I mean, what potential applications do you think this has? What kind of scenario do you think this would have that could be potentially useful? I'm picturing Suicide Virus. That's the kind of situation I'm picturing. You get into yeah. a quasi-engine whereby you're making multiple creatures due to things like Genesis Chamber, Young Pyromancer, what have you. You're sacrificing them for benefit, and you're creating a kind of beneficial loop where you just 
load the board up with permanence. <laughs> you know, it actually occurs to me that part of what made that Genesis Chamber deck so good is that the format was not quite ready for the kind of creature generation, the horizontal gener- creature population, mm-hmm. you know, that I think that um, Young Pyromancer actually creates. Um, but I don't think this... Yeah, I'm having a, um, a difficult time imagining how you would generate serious card advantage out of this. The three-minute cost, it has to do... It has to really be robust not marginal i mean the, just the conditionality is just it's just it's too steep mm-hmm. i'm thinking back to our conversation about blood scrivener and that effect yeah. was far easier to cast than this and would rely on a very similar set of mechanics different cards but a very similar goal building yeah. an engine that was repeatable and even at one black and one colorless for the Scrivener, you and I still concluded, and I think correctly, that it's just not worth trying to construct those kind of engines in Vintage. Yep. All right. That's what I expected you to say, and I agree. Zero, zero, I think. Yep. Let's talk about the ultimate scary haunted plate mail. Four mana, artifact, equipment. Equipped creature gets plus four, plus four. Zero colon. Until end of turn, Haunted Plate Mail becomes a 4-4 spirit artifact creature that's no longer in equipment. Activate this ability only if you control no creatures. And the equip cost is 4. The immediate comparison that jumps to my mind from recent history is Batter Skull. No surprise there. Uh, an equipment that can do damage just on its own with no other creature in play. But I think the more humorous and historical comparison that I like is to Jade Statue, <laughs> which certainly was vintage playable in, in its day. Into the Abyss deck. <laughs> yep, exactly. And I like that comparison much more just because it's hilarious and a little more historically relevant. And Steve, you've obviously done recent research on those Jade Statue decks. Do you think there's any place for that approach, just that kind of structural framework to approaching vintage these days not really part of what was so useful about cards like jade statue was that they would evade traditional kinds of creature removal so you could put it on the table and it wouldn't get plowed it wouldn't be hit by the abyss you know it couldn't get bolted things like that mm-hmm. um balance yeah it wouldn't be it would evade balance. wrath of god effects whatever um Nowadays, there isn't a lot of targeted creature removal. There tends to be like versatile things like uh, Lightning Bolt, um, things like a J- uh, Jace, uh, pretty much the extent of it. Um, you know, <laughs> you just deal with creatures on the table, and they're really not that, they're not really primarily there to even to attack. They're, almost every creature that actually sees play is a disruptive threat. So I think, you know, there's really not much space for that kind of thing in modern contemporary vintage for that particular reason. Um, I, I like the fact that this thing does only last for end of turn, until end of turn, and it has zero casting costs. I like the fact that you can equip it, um, or you can use it, but the reality is that any deck that I think is going to have this, is there's a good chance they're going to have a creature in play. So, I mean, for example, if your opponent gives you a uh, an Orchard Spirit token, <laughs> you can't just activate this. So, um, you know, what, what do you think? Well, your summation is obviously correct. The, the thing is also, your last point is really the deal breaker, because even this is a controlling card, right? You're talking about having a control deck that's going to be stymieing creatures in some way through mass removal or whatnot, the abyss, and then trying to finish the opponent by getting in with just this. But the modern vintage control deck relies on more creatures than ever before. Dark Confidant, Snapcaster Mage, Goblin Welder, etc., etc., etc. And so this has no place in that. You have to 
rehash and you have to rebuild, even landstill decks aren't going to want to play this because they live on the stack. They live at instant speed. They live at uncounterable or non-spell type effects. So this notion of the Jade Statue approach to victory where you're repeatedly removing creatures or stymieing them somehow and then just riding one single creature for the win in big chunks, a la Morphling or something, Sarah Angel, that's just completely outmoded. It doesn't. It no longer works these days. That said, there could be some interesting interactions that you could bring to bear, and Vintage does have a place for things that become creatures, because Mistress Factory is very common. But Mistress Factory is a whole different animal. It's common for a completely different reason, because it's a non-spell, for one. Mm-hmm. If you're going to try and play this card, you would probably almost certainly try and play it via Stoneforge Mystic. Yep. Which, <laughs> which renders it irrelevant. <laughs> which, yeah, makes it... You'd have to pay four mana to equip your Stoneforge Mystic in order to get any use out of it. And so that's a very non-synergistic interaction, especially in the face of Batterskull. So, yeah, they used to call that a Nambo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I just don't see... it. It's... I brought it up more for historical reference in the comparison to Batter Skull today and the par- comparison to Jade Statue in the past. It is a great homage to Jade Statue. I really like it in that respect, but it really has no place in the modern metagame. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm going zero. Same here. If I could go negative, I would. <laughs> So to summarize, that's the last card we've got, and out of all the cards we've analyzed, we've predicted one, two, three, four of them to see play. That's pretty good for a hundred and some new cards. In fact, that's that's about exactly right. I mean, I think what something like uh, maybe like three percent of the, the the entire Type One Vintage card pool sees play in Vintage, so that would be consistent. That's a fascinating observation. I it, I think that it demonstrates an element of consistency in R and D, and one that I think is satisfactory to us as Eternal players, especially Vintage players, because we're still getting that trickle of effects. Utility sometimes, surprising build-around cards, others, and occasional bombs a la Notion Thief and let's see about Young Pyromancer, mm-hmm. Deathrite Shaman. So, yeah, I'm pretty satisfied with this from a ratio standpoint. Like you said, smaller set in terms of new cards, so there's not much to expect quantity-wise, but I think that Vintage Champs will be affected by M14. There's one thing we've seen, sets like this can make a difference. I mean, for heaven's sakes, Flusterstorm came in a smaller set. Yeah, we've got impacts from all their different products these days, which is kind of cool. I'm really looking forward to, now that you mentioned it, the next Commander product. We don't have any information on when that'll be, probably 2014, but I bet it'll have playables in it. Steve, it should be no surprise that our question of the week is, which M14 card do you think will see the most play in Vintage? The answer might be a non-issue, I think, for many listeners, but we still want to solicit your feedback. Yep, let us know what you think. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 27 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. It's not safe protective game! <laughs> <laughs>